0: We just got news in the last couple of weeks that they have made uh, plans and have been accepted to something called a cross-cultural internship, and what that means is that they are going to be spending two years in Portugal uh, working with the Word of Life location there, and they'll be doing ministry, they'll be finishing their bachelor's degrees and that they will be uh, learning the language as well. So that's a pretty cool thing. And it made me think about the fact that You know, that's how you know when you have learned a language is when you're able to speak it well and also you begin to think it. And so by being, and one of the best ways that you can learn a language well is by complete immersion, right? I mean, just get in there where that you're forced to speak it and forced to learn it. Uh, And that's what they're going to be experiencing among other things. Now, they're going to be here during the middle of the week this week. But they will be back uh, sometime before Brian and Jenny's wedding at the beginning of June. And so I hope that they'll be able to be here on a Sunday and tell you more about that. But in addition to being able to share that news, which is kind of exciting, uh, it's a good lead into what we're talking about today as we continue with the Paradigm series, talking about reading and understanding the bible and today we're talking about immersion just like i was saying if you want to really learn a language then you just immerse yourself in it and you have to speak it and you have to function within it you have to do everything in that language in order to um in order to function And that's the best way of learning. And when it comes to the scriptures, so something that sometimes similarly happens that if you want to think God's thoughts, if you want to understand His ways, then one of the best ways that you can do is immerse yourself in the scriptures. And the question that we're asking and answering today is really this one: It's how can I get God's wisdom for my circumstances? How can I get God's wisdom? For my circumstances, because we all want God's wisdom. We would like to have his direction. If he's all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, if he has our best interests at heart, then he wants what's best for us. We kind of tend to want what's best for us as well, and so we would like to know what God thinks about the situation, but as we talked about in the very first message in this series, the Bible is not necessarily a theological handbook. It's not set out in question-and-answer format. Should I take this job? Should I move to this other state? Should I marry this person? You know, it doesn't necessarily directly deal with my circumstances, but those are really the things, those are the questions that we are most interested in, right? You know, it's wonderful to know about David and Goliath, but we want to know about our particular situation and how we can have God's wisdom for our circumstances. And this pillar of the paradigm that we've been talking about is the key to getting God's wisdom for your circumstances, for what you're facing right now. And what we're really talking about today is this idea of application. How can I take what I learn in the scriptures and apply it? How do I know that I am doing it well? Uh, Just to bring you up to speed and remind you, uh, because it's been a little while since we've been together, that we are in this series that was prompted by my listening to a podcast from The Bible Project talking about their paradigm for reading and understanding the Bible. And so we have been working through this paradigm, and you'll see the... Uh, link to that podcast in your growth guide, so I would encourage you to start listening along with that if you haven't already. And kind of the big idea, the paradigm is that the point of the Bible is to point us to Jesus. The way they state it at the Bible Project is that it is a unif- the Bible is a unified story that leads us to Jesus. Jesus said that um, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. The point of the scriptures, the point of the Bible is to point people to Jesus. So that's the overall paradigm, and it's held up by these pillars that we've been talking about. We started out with number one, that the Bible is both human and divine. Sometimes our tendency is to separate those things out and say if if people had anything to do with it, then it must not be God in it. Or if God is doing it, then any kind of natural explanation or anything that involves people is kind of ruled out. Well, no, that's not the way God works. It's not the way Jesus uh, works. It's that the Bible is both human and divine. It was fully inspired and yet people had their hands in it and were sovereignly directed by God. In the process. The next thing that we said, the next pillar, number two, is that what the Bible teaches is true is true. And this is talking about the overall canonical context of scriptures, that you can't just take bits and pieces out like I did at the beginning of the message when we talked about uh, this one and saying, you know, Judas went off to betray Jesus and Jesus said, whatever you do, do quickly and follow that example. You know, you can't just pull back and forth between that and get something that's meaningful. You have to look at it as a whole. What the Bible teaches is true, is true. And then thirdly, last week we talked about the Bible being messianic literature. In other words, the Bible is the story of God setting things right through his son. The way that he set things right in the world is by sending his son. His son is still active and present in us, his people, and that is God's plan for setting things right Now, this week, the fourth pillar that I'm introducing you to today is this, that the Bible was designed to prompt ongoing reflection and response. The Bible was designed to prompt ongoing reflection and response. Most of the time when I read a book or when I watch a movie, I read it, I watch it there it sits. You know, I have a nice collection, a shelf full of DVDs. This is kind of getting old school now, right? But some of you, I know you have a collection of DVDs at home that are sitting on a shelf collecting dust. And for the most part, I'd say 90 to 95% of them, you watch them, you put them on the shelf, and that's where they've sat since then. There are only a few that you go back and you watch, or or books that you reread, because that's just generally not what we do, right? We watch it. We've seen it. You know, that's the way it is. Uh, Prequels of Star Wars, yeah, I've seen them a couple of times, but I can't say that I want to revisit them. Original trilogy, watch them repeatedly all the time, happily. You know, that's just different kinds of different kinds of media, different kinds of approaches to it. Well, what about the Bible? Is the Bible designed so that you just, you know, sit through, you read through it, and you're like, okay, done. I've got it. I've read it. You know, uh, I can put that on the shelf with my DVDs and let it collect dust, but I've got all the benefit that I need out of it. Well... The laughter indicates that that's not how we understand the scriptures, right? And this is just making explicit something that we know from experience that the Bible was designed to prompt ongoing reflection and response. And therefore, practically speaking, what does that mean? That means that we, as Messiah people, as Jesus people, as Christ people, are going to do that. We're going to read and respond. And in fact, I'm gonna suggest that you use a system because tools make all the difference. use a system for reading and responding to God's word daily. That's gonna be the practical aspect. We're going to look... At two passages of scripture today, one that kind of introduces the idea and one that will be kind of a lab. It'll be kind of like when you were taking science or are taking science in school, you know, you have the classroom experience and then you go off and do a lab. Well, we're going to do the same thing here. We're going to read a little bit about reading and responding to God's word, and then we're going to actually do a case study of the Apostle Paul doing exactly the kind of thing. That we're talking about. So let's look at it together. This is going to be Psalm 1, the very first Psalm, and a passage from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 to 15. Here we go. Psalm 1. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers, but they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the river bank, bearing fruit in each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. But not the wicked, they are like worthless chaff scattered by the wind. They will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly, for the Lord watches over the path of the godly. But the path of the wicked leads to destruction. And then flip ahead to our lab in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. What soldier has to pay his own expenses? What farmer plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for the flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Am I expressing merely a human opinion, or does the law say the same thing? For the law of Moses says you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. Was God only thinking about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, it was written for us so that the one who plows and the one who threshes the grain might both expect a share of the harvest. Since we have planted a spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? If you support others who preach to you, shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported? But we've never used this right. We would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ. Don't you realize those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? and those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. Yet I have never used any of these rites. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, each I notice that each time when I pray at this time in the message, I almost always start with a thank you for your word. And I never want that to be a rote meaningless repetition. We are so grateful for your word. It uh It brings life. It points us to Jesus, who is the author of life, who grants us salvation, who changes us from the inside out. It was inspired by your Holy Spirit, who now lives and resides, energizing, directing, guiding, comforting us. And so we are so very thankful for your presence in your word, by your Holy Spirit, and among your people. I pray that as we look at your word today that you would give insight, direction, hope, encouragement, peace. Stir up something within us that is from you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, you may remember that uh, in addition to on-site now, we are online as well, and to simplify and streamline things for us a little bit, what's happening is we're filming on Sunday mornings and then broadcasting that online and on demand in the following week. So if you miss a Sunday, subscribe to the podcast, that'll be the very fastest way to get the message, and you can also watch it and catch up uh, from that point on. So everything that we do online, in person, on site, underground, which by the way, we're glad we're underground today. I was upstairs. It's a little bit toasty, and we're just getting started. So thank the Lord for church underground. Uh, uh, Whatever we are doing, we are doing it to inspire and equip you to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, why? Because we know that following Jesus makes life better, and we're gonna see that in Psalm one, and makes you better at life, bringing glory to God in the process. Again, I'll invite you to let us know who you are so that we can stay in touch with you. All right, so today, the fourth pillar of our paradigm. The Bible was designed to prompt ongoing reflection and response. That's actually, uh, I'll put a little aside here, one of the reasons why we provide a growth guide and why I encourage you to take notes and follow along because there's just something about that interactivity that helps things to stick and helps you to stay engaged. So the Bible is designed to prompt ongoing reflection and response. So the first thing I want you to know in this introduction in Psalm 1 is that reflection reflection on the scriptures gives results reflection on the scriptures gives results if you reflect on the scriptures you can expect a certain result here's the way the bible project puts this pillar when they were explaining it the bible is ancient jewish meditation literature let me just pause there for just a second Uh, Sometimes when you say meditation, you think of om, you know, trying to clear your mind of everything and not think about anything. That's not what the biblical idea of meditation is. I heard before, and I think it's a good parallel to it. It says, if you know how to worry, then you know how to meditate. Right? So, if you can think about uh, all the things that might possibly go wrong, all the things that you're concerned about, all the ways that uh, things might happen that you're not uh, really wanting them to happen, the worries and concerns that you have, what you're doing is you are meditating. You're meditating on all the things that could go bad. You're turning them over and over again in your mind. Well, meditation from a biblical perspective is the same kind of thing. It's turning something over and over and over again in your mind. but it's turning over the truth of the scripture instead of your worries, instead of your fears. Uh, So the Bible is ancient Jewish meditation literature. In other words, it was designed to be turned over and over again in your mind. They go on. That is artistically designed to interpret itself. That's a good thought, hold on to that. And encourage a lifetime of rereading and reflection of rereading and reflection it's not like those movies that are collecting dust on your dvd shelf they're designed so that you're constantly revisiting it so let's look at psalm chapter one the first verse it starts out blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers i'm going to go crazy with my highlighter today so just be careful Beware, there's going to be a lot of color in today's slides, but we'll start with highlighting that word blessed. Blessed. What is the idea of blessed? Sometimes it's translated happy. Sometimes it's just the idea of being at peace and having what the Bible describes, the biblical word of shalom. It's, it's, things, it's very similar to the idea that we get our kind of tagline from when Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. What was the abundant life that Jesus was talking about? He was talking about the blessed life. That's why we can say with full throated conviction that we believe that following jesus will make life better and make you better at life this is a consistent theme throughout the scriptures so that's the kind of person that we are talking about it's how do you get that kind of abundant life how do you get to that place in your life and psalm 1 is going to give us some contrast it starts out here we go here's the color Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, what I've done is I've highlighted the parallelism that is there. It's a development of thought. There are three uh, uh, positions, if you will, walking, standing, or sitting. There are three crowds, wicked, sinners, and scoffers. And there are three uh, kind of... uh, the what would you call them? Context. Let's say the council of the wicked, the path of the sinners, or the seat of scoffers. And so, what is this saying? This is saying you can immerse yourself in a couple of different things. Here's one option: you could immerse yourself in the council of the wicked. A biblical, the biblical uh, word walk. When you see walk, it's often a um, what's the word? Uh, 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 Idiom. Thank you. It's an idiom for the way that you live your life. So you can live your life listening to the wicked. And remember, we know what listening means also. It's not just sound waves hitting your ears. It's actually doing something. It's responding. You can, you can follow the counsel of the wicked. You can progress in that, and you can stand in the path of sinners. You are just kind of you're going along now. You, there's a well-worn path, and you're on it, and you're continuing on it. Or you can sit in the seat of scoffers. That's you're not just listening. You're not just walking on this path. You are making yourself at home and just sitting by and just scoffing and mocking as everybody goes along trying to do the right thing. That is a path, that is a way of life. And it says, if you want the blessed life, you're not gonna do those things, right? And so he sets up a contrast. The author of the psalm sets up a contrast beginning at verse two. But those whose delight but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night? He's saying out here, setting out here's a different path. Here's a contrasting path. This is the kind of path that leads to blessing. If you. D- Delight in the law of the Lord. Meditate on His law day and night. And again, I've color coded it for you. Don't you wish you had brought your highlighters today? Uh, delighting is paralleled with meditating. Remember, I've told you before that this is this is kind of the key characteristic of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. Sometimes they're similar. Sometimes they're in contrast. We'll talk more about that in a sec. But here, delighting and meditating. How many of you delight in the law? of the Lord. Now let's talk about this word law. If you listen to the Bible Project, you will hear that that law is a translation of Torah, which is I think a literal and more and a better um, translation is instruction. Uh, in our Christian circles, especially, I know the one that I grew up in, which was a great biblical preaching church, but the, the idea of law got a bad rap. And so we had a kind of a resistance against the law. And the, the and, and when Paul, for example, said the law is good, then we were like, eh, I'm not sure that's right. You know, <laughs> Paul, may, uh, that, that that doesn't make sense. But but there is a distinction. The law was designed as instruction to bless us, not as a way for us to try to earn our salvation. And so the response, the negative response that we have to Torah, to instruction, to the law, is when it's misused as, okay, if I can just do all these things, then God will love me and accept me. The fact is, we are never going to check all the boxes. We know this, right? Right? Uh, We don't even live up to our own standards and we think we're going to live up to God's standards. That's not going to happen So the law is a blessing, but it is not a means of salvation It's not a way of entering into a relationship It's the blessing that comes because of the relationship God gives us his instruction and not only his written instruction But his internal instruction through the person of the Holy Spirit so We delight in his instruction. We delight in his ways. Why? Because they lead to blessing. Because we want what's good for us. And he wants what's good for us even more. And so he gives us his instruction. And so if that's the case, if the instruction of God is the path to the best life possible then yeah we're probably going to delight in it and look at what look at what is in parallel there the word meditate to meditate now something that if you listen to the Bible Project podcast, you will learn, is that this word meditate, we looked at Hebrew last week. We're gonna look at it again this week. I, re- I told you last week that most Hebrew words have three-letter roots. Now, that three-letter root doesn't just mean one thing, but it, it defines kind of a, um, uh, a, a universe of possible meanings. They're related, but they might not be the same. The word meditate is haggah. And it came originally from the idea of chewing on something, of literally ruminating on it. And then it became, the meanings continued to include the idea of reciting. It's just something that's always on your lips. It's the same word that when in the Psalms it says that I meditate on your law in the watches of the night. In other words, I'm just lying on my bed, if I can't sleep, I'm not counting sheep. I'm thinking about your word. I'm reciting it to myself. I'm telling it to myself. Um, one of the things that you might hear me say from time to time is, uh, you know, God. God's uh, spoken very strongly against lying. But sometimes I hear people lying to themselves over and over again. Even people who are believers that would never consider telling a lie to somebody else. They're always telling themselves lies in their own mind and saying, don't do that. Tell yourself the truth. Don't repeat the lies of the enemy. Tell yourself the truth. That's the idea of reciting, reminding, chewing on it. In fact, in the Bible Project, uh, if you've listened to it, you know who John is. John was saying, maybe it's onomatopoeia. It's like, ha, 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 haga, ha, ha. You're just turning it over and over again in your mind. That's the word that's here. That's the concept that we're talking about. Uh, I love to pull in the message translation sometimes. This is the message translation of Psalm 1:2. Instead, you thrill to God's word. You chew on the Scripture day and night. Where'd Eugene Peterson get that? He got that from Haga. He's got Haga. Ha, ha, ha. He's chewing on the Scripture day and night. So, what does that look like? Verse three. They, the people that live like this are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit in each season. He's setting up another contrast. Uh, it's don't go down this path. Instead, do this, including meditating on the law of the Lord. What's the result? Because we're saying that reflection gives results. What's, the ref- what's what, are, what are the results that you can expect? You're going to be like a tree that's planted by a riverbank. Now, what's the benefit of a tree being planted by the riverbank, right? It's It's... Tapped into that water, exactly. It it, it can survive a drought because it's right next to the river. It's got an alternate source. It's going to bear fruit in every season. It's gonna be healthy and bearing fruit. Goes on to say, their leaves never wither and they prosper in all they do. He's painting a picture of a fulfilled, abundant, blessed life. And then he draws the contrast And I love the way the NIV puts it. Not so the wicked. (laughs) Ain't gonna happen if you're choosing this path. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Now, let's ruminate. Let's meditate on the difference. You've got a tree that is alive, that is planted, that is tapped into that source of water and bearing fruit in every season. And then he's saying, but here's the contrast, not so the wicked. Instead of being planted, they're being blown away in the air. Instead of being full of life, they're like the, ch- the, the dead chaff that surrounds the wheat, and it's just being scattered in the, wind. the translation said that I read originally, the New Living Translation said worthless chaff. It's not saying that people are worthless. It's saying that, uh, that it's this dead, useless stuff that we just throw away. That's, that's the contrast compared to the life lived in Christ and in his word compared, compared to the life that is unconnected, that is dead, that is transitory. So... Not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. So there's a result, there's a reason why I get excited about sharing God's word with you because I know it's going to change your life. I know the kind of life that it can lead to and the reflection as you turn it over and over again in your mind, that leads to the kind of life that you want. And that's not by accident because the Bible was designed To prompt ongoing reflection and response. Now, as we get ready to look at the lab in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I want to point out a particular verse that's kind of context and background for this. And the point that this verse makes is that reflection leads to a response. Now, I'm actually going to spend two weeks on this, and next week we're going to go in a little bit more depth in this aspect. But reflection leads to a response. That's why when I encourage you to read God's word on a daily basis, I don't just say read it. I say read and respond to it because it's the response that brings the blessing. And it's not just designed so that you know stuff. It's designed so that you will do stuff, that you will live it out. So let's look at the verse. That the Apostle Paul is gonna quote and kind of riff on. It's found originally in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Now, Deuteronomy is uh, Moses kind of giving a commentary on the law, on the instruction that God has given. And so there's kind of like it's kinda like case law. It's going through, well, if you have this situation, what should you do? And if you're faced with this situation, this is what you should do. And so there's just a bunch of different things like this. It talks about marriage. It talks about work, all in this one chapter. And there's this this one verse that's kind of a standalone that seems to have nothing to do with anything else that he's actually talking about in there. But it's just, again, bullet points of case law. Do this if you encounter this. If you encounter this, do this. So he says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. So pretty straightforward. You've got your ox and he's treading out the grain and you're not going to muzzle him to keep him from eating as he is working. That would just be cruel pretty much. So, so you don't do that, right? And it calls for a response. It's like, okay, if you're in this situation, you do this or you don't do that. He's giving you a situation saying, this is a way that, this, that you apply instruction. If you are supposed to be uh, uh, ruling over the world, if you are taking care of God's creation, well, part of that means taking good care of your animals, and so you're not going to be cruel to them. You're going to take care of them. So that's kind of a context before we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Third point, reflection can be taught, and I think this is probably one of the most encouraging parts about this message is that you don't have to just wait sitting on a hilltop for enlightenment. Uh, and then if you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. There's actually stuff that you can do. You can be a good reader and interpreter of God's word. You might be frustrated because you think, oh, you know, some people read this and they say this, and some people are believers and they're thinking that, and I just, how do they get the same thing out of it? Well, that's because some people are bad interpreters of God's word. They do not know how to do it. God loved them. They're my brothers and sisters, but they're bad at it. And I don't want you to be bad at it. I want you to be good at it. I don't want you to embarrass me when you go out and tell what you think the Bible said to people. Uh, but it'll happen because God is continuing to work on my pride. So, uh, uh, but please, please. Don't just think, oh, I read it, and and because I have God's Holy Spirit, what I think about it must be right. Please don't do that, okay? But the encouraging part is if you feel like I'm not good at this, I read and I don't understand, it can be taught. It can be taught. You can learn how to be a good interpreter and therefore to know with pretty good certainty what God's wisdom is for your particular situation. This is really good news, so, let's learn it. Let's be good interpreters. Reflection, reading and responding to God's word appropriately can be taught. And I'll give you a couple of key pointers and some examples from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First off, look for patterns. This is a big theme in the Bible Project podcast that uh, remember in the definition it said artistically designed. They didn't just throw together a bunch of stories. They gave extreme thought. The human authors in the scriptures gave an extreme amount of thought to what they were doing and how they put things together. So look for repeating Patterns. We see a small example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, beginning in those first verses that I read to you. What soldier has to pay for his own expenses? What farmer plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for a flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? What do, what do we see there? We have a pattern of these different people who are serving in some way and experiencing some kind of benefit as a result, and we don't even think twice about these examples we just assume that this is the way things happen this is a repeating pattern in this small little verse in the scriptures but there are bigger patterns there are types there are repeating themes that go throughout the scripture the idea that the bible is messianic literature that it's all about jesus is just a recurrent and constant theme i've pointed out to you over the several last weeks when it comes to david that david is a type and a mm. and a pointer to a theme of a christ like character in the scriptures. Well, this is all over the scriptures, so look for it and gain insight from it because one story will give you insight into another. You're going to look for patterns. Secondly, you're going to look for comparisons you're going to look for comparisons. Sometimes the comparisons are between two similar things. That's what that pattern there, that list was. It's These are similar to one another. We group those together. They give insight into one another. Sometimes they're contrasting. This is what we saw in Psalm 1. You got the, uh, the, those who are following the path of the wicked and those who, are follow, who meditate on God's law day and night. Those are contrasts that you see. Sometimes it's a lesser to greater contrast. Uh, For example, when Jesus started out, I think it's in Luke 18 when he said, uh, and it says that Jesus told them the story so that they would always pray and never give up. Uh, and then he tells the story of the unjust judge. Well, here you've got this woman who needs justice. She goes to the judge. She's constantly badgering him, but he doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about people. But because she's so persistent, because she won't shut up, he eventually gives justice. Now, the judge is a contrasting, not similar, contrasting Uh, example to God. He's saying this is a lesser to greater. If you've got an earthly judge, a man who doesn't care about people and has no fear of God, but because of the woman's persistence, she will get justice even from him in the end, then the conclusion that Jesus draws is how much more will God give justice to his people who are crying out to him day and night and the lesson of that is that we are much more likely to give up than that god is unlikely to come through much more likely god will come through than uh, and we might give up so sometimes it's a lesser to greater here is a lesser to greater example in first corinthians chapter 9 And Paul says, am I expressing merely a human opinion when I draw these parallels between the farmer and the shepherd and the soldier? Is this just my own ideas or does God's instruction, his law, say the same thing? For the law of Moses says... You must not muzzle an ox, this should sound familiar, some of you are having deja vu, to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. What is he doing? He's going back to the scriptures that he's been thinking about and saying, okay, well, if you do this for an ox, then how much more, lesser to greater, are you going to treat people at least as good as your animals? That's what he's saying. And he makes it explicit in the next verse. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Doesn't this have application to us? Doesn't this give insight into our situation? Yes, it was written for us so that the one who plows and the one who threshes the grain might both expect a share in the harvest. So in this passage, it's actually a segment within a larger context. Okay, the... the, the, the book of 1 Corinthians is Paul addressing the situation in the church in Corinth. Half, uh, the first part is about what he heard about the church. And then the, the next part, the longer part, is about his answering the questions that the church has sent to him. And you can pick out those different questions because in some translations they will say, now concerning this, now concerning food offered to idols, now concerning marriage, now concerning blah. And that's, these are the questions they were asking and he's responding to it. It's like listening to half of a telephone conversation. And so in this context, he's dealing with meat offered to idols, something that probably most of us are never going to encounter, but it has application for us. He's saying, Uh, And this is the situation. Meat is offered at a pagan temple to an idol. You go over, you have dinner with somebody, and they say, oh, this this meat was offered to a pagan idol. What do you do in that situation? Do you go ahead and eat it and accept their hospitality, knowing that, that idols are not real? Or do you abstain because some people do think that idols are real and it might cause them to stumble? So that's the bigger situation he's dealing with. And the bigger principle is, do I restrict my freedom for the benefit of somebody else? Do I have, I have the freedom to eat meat? I know it's not you know, that meat offered to an idol isn't to a real God, or, and, and you know, it's not gonna violate my conscience, But if I have a brother who is still kind of working that out and he's sitting at the table next to me and my eating is going to cause him to stumble, I'm probably going to restrict my freedom. And so Paul in this passage is using an example of a way that he restricted his freedom, something he had the perfect right to do, but he decided not to do out of love for others. So that's what he's talking about. and He's basically talking about getting paid for doing his ministry. And he uses this passage, this little verse from Deuteronomy chapter 5, as an example. So let's let's go on with his argument. Since we have planted spiritual seed among you, notice this is a greater to the lesser comparison. Uh, We've planted spiritual seed among you, aren't we entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? And a comparison it's if you've supported others you've had these other preachers and ministers and pastors and evangelists come in and you've supported them we are the apostles who planted this church shouldn't we have an even greater right to be supported so you can see throughout this if you you just become start becoming aware of these things you can draw the right conclusions by looking for these comparisons and looking for these parallels and seeing the overall theme and thrust of the message. And then you become a good interpreter. Last tip, let scripture interpret scripture. Let scripture interpret scripture. Three aspects to this, this is not an entirety, You know, it's not everything that could be said about this, but it's enough to get you started. First off, the context. When you read a verse, Look at the context, and that'll give you insight into what that verse means because it's in the part. It's a part of a larger argument of what's going on. Look for what Christ has said about this. If, as we believe, Christ is the Son of God, He is. We t- looked at this passage just recently in Hebrews chapter one. In the past, God spoke to the variety of different ways and variety of different people. Blah blah blah. But finally, God has spoken to us definitively in His Son. So if Christ says something about it, then that's probably a good way of interpreting what that actually means. And then the canon of Scripture, this is back to what the Bible teaches is true, is true. Canon is a word that means the guide rule. And a couple of years ago, many years ago now, there was, uh, I was at my parents' house and some people knocked on the door and I answered the door and there were some Mormon missionaries. And if you're not familiar with Mormons, then they have added their own version of what they consider to be inspired scriptures. And so he held up a Bible and he said, you know, if you just believe the Bible, that's just one point. And you can just spin it around, and you can make it point in any direction that you want to. What you really need is another book, like the Book of Mormon, and then you can kind of line things up, and it'll point in one direction. Now, I wasn't smart enough to think about this at the time, but what I should have said—have you ever had one of those moments? What I should have said is, well, actually, the Bible is a collection of 66 books that (laughs) all— form a stream, a line that points in one direction to the Christ of the Bible. And actually, the Book of Mormon is way out here. Uh, I'll do respect to my friends and who might be Mormon, but this is different. And so the canon of Scripture, the reason, remember, that things are in the Scripture is because they fit They tell a unified story that leads to Jesus. So if you wanna understand a particular passage, you have to look at it in the rule and in the hold up that that plumb line to see if it fits. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So let's look at the context. Uh, He says, we deserve to be fed, we deserve, to be housed we 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 should not have to pay our own way but remember the greater context of surrendering my rights out of love for others but we have never used this right we would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ and when i read that i immediately think of jesus words because That's the context. The people who wrote the Bible were just immersed, just soaked in, just marinated in the scriptures. And so that comes out in their writing. Uh, What did Jesus say? He was talking about whether the disciples should let children come to him. And he says, but if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to have a large millstone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. I think he feels pretty strongly about not putting a stumbling block in front of someone on their way to Christ. And so what's the Apostle Paul doing? He's saying, I would rather, I'd rather work a second job. I'd rather pay my own way than be a stumbling block. And I'd rather, as he goes on to say, go without food, without meat. I'll never eat another bite of meat if that's What's going to keep my brother from stumbling? Let's see what he says. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple? He's again making the point, look, this is standard operating procedure. And those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings. Remember, at this time, when Paul is writing, the, the temple is still standing. People are still bringing sacrifices to the temple. And he's saying, what do you think? Do you think that once your sacrifice shows at the, up at the temple, they take it into the Holy of Holies and God is having a big barbecue? No, the, the people who are serving, they're eating those meals. That just makes sense. And he goes on to say, in the same way, the Lord ordered those that preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. What's he doing? He's saying, look, we've got a word from Christ on this. And most people think that he was referring back to Luke 10, chapter or Luke 10, 7, which is one of the passages where Jesus is sending out the 72, and he says to these missionaries that he's sending out on his behalf, when you get to this place and you find a house to stay at, stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. In other words, Paul is saying, "We've we've got a word from the Lord on this. We don't have to wonder about this. And then he goes back and he says, yet I have never used any of these rights, I've never used any of these rights. I could have, and I've just made, I've just spent a whole chapter explaining to you why the scriptures and Christ and the whole canon of, of, of the context of scriptures says this is okay, but there's a greater context, and that's love for my brothers and sisters. And that's the context that he's dealing with. Right before this passage, in the end of chapter 8, he says, So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I'll never eat meat again as long as I live. Now, we deal with a different situation a different context. We're not talking about meat offered to idols. But we do have brothers and sisters that we have a responsibility to love. And we can make great application from this passage. He goes on to say, for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And the call that we have is to love others as Christ has loved us. To lay down our life for our friends. To choose their good over us, just as Christ did when He came and offered Himself as a sacrifice for our sins. When He came and offered salvation, when we say yes to that, we're receiving his forgiveness. He came in the person of the Lord of the universe humbly as a baby in a manger. But when we say yes to him, we're accepting him as Lord and master. We're saying, you get to call the shots, what you say goes with me. That's what it means to follow Jesus. So today, we've been talking about application. What we've we said, we've said that the Bible is designed to prompt ongoing reflection and response, and therefore you need a system. Uh, a, a good intentions aren't going to cut it. You need a system for reading and responding to God's word daily. So to wrap up, I'm gonna, I've laid out a whole group of resources, tools, tools, that you can make use of. These have been up for a while, but I've never talked about them. This is the New Believers Bible. If you don't have a Bible, this is a great place to start. If you've been reading the Bible for a long time and you would like to uh, get a fresh take on it, you'll notice that I often use the message translation. This is the message translation of the Bible. It's a good companion for your Bible reading. Both of these are free, made available by the New Hampshire Bible Society. I also have a variety of life journaling resources. Anybody who's been around uh, Cornerstone for any period of time, uh, for a long period of time especially, has heard me talk about this regularly. It is a system, a plan for reading and responding to God's word. The... Everything that you need in order to make that happen is in this free little handout right here, so you can grab one of these. But if you need a fancy tool in order to do this, and it's gonna help you, uh, and sometimes it does, it's just something about having the right tools that makes all the difference, there are all these life journals, which are basically a reading plan, a little bit of instruction, take my instruction, it's even more, and a place for you to write Read and respond to God's Word. Now, there are some new models available here. Uh, There's also a children's version of the Life Journal, and here's the deal that I'm going to make with you. Each of these is about 8 or $9. I will let you take one for free if you promise and follow through on the promise of reading and responding. And by responding, I mean write something. Reading and responding to God's Word at least five times... (laughs) over the next two weeks, five times per week, over the next two weeks, then take a journal with our compliments. We want you to read and respond to God's word because we know that when you do, you are going to have that blessed life that Psalm one talks about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious God and you have given us as We have heard in the scriptures everything that we need for life and godliness. I pray, Lord, that we will be a people who thrill to your word, who chew on it day and night and reap the results that comes from that kind of life, knowing you better, loving others more, living a life that reflects well on you.